scars of the price which every godly believer pays for loyalty to Christ. This is a quote from John MacArthur, which I think is truly the story of our lives. It's with great anxiousness and trepidation that I speak today, for many of us have lost a great friend of me. And I know that many of us would desire to use this time to celebrate her life. That time is coming. But we know that we're here today to worship the God that she would have directed us to. And so we're left here today with a scar in the hostile world. And scars are the price which every godly believer pays for loyalty to Christ. God, in his perfect sovereignty, directed us this morning to the book of the Bible, which talks in the greatest detail about what to do when things get tough. That's the first epistle of Jesus. This theme is woven throughout the book. Consider chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where it says, Now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials, so that the test of genuineness and faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Chapter 2, verse 19, where it says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrow. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves the same way. And then later in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, it says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as if something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. From just these four small snippets, and there are others, you can see the theme of taking that which is difficult for a trial and allowing God to turn it into something He uses for His glory. And today we're going to discuss how God uses our hostile world for His glory. Those of you who know me well know that today represents one of my favorite holidays. For years I've celebrated Reformation. And I don't just celebrate it because I want to bash the Roman Church. And I don't just celebrate it because I want a holier day than what other people may celebrate on this particular day. But I see the Reformation as a time when Christians knew something. It was a time when Christians were willing to face and suffer persecution and unabashedly proclaim the name of Christ, Christ in the face of that persecution. And there were many saints during this time that I feel exemplified the nature about which First Peter was speaking. Martin Luther and many of the reformers after him recognized what a chosen life looks like in a hostile world. Luther emphasized two major points, justification by faith alone and the priesthood of all believers. Real quickly, justification by faith alone. That means that we never can earn God's love. There's nothing we can do to deserve it. All we can do is use the faith God gives us to trust in Christ and then live according to that. The priesthood of all believers is that every Christian has their own personal relationship with God reading the Bible and worshiping in our own language, and we can pray directly to God without someone else. So when we talk about God supplying us with His faith and a personal relationship with Him, I can't think of a better text than one I memorized as a child 
from 1 Peter 2.9, where it says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, and a peculiar people. So for those of you with a watch who are worried, I'm not getting to the text yet, and you've got a pen ready to take notes, I'm now getting to the text. I'm here now. But let's look at where this text is. When we looked at the context of 1 Peter, let's look at where it comes in chapter 2. It comes immediately after Peter quotes two different passages in Isaiah. 28.16 and 8.14. And he's full of Old Testament quotes and language if you read Peter. I had a cross-reference Bible and almost after every verse there's a cross-reference to an Old Testament verse. Peter's full of that. And verse 8, the verse immediately before where we are, he concludes with, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And no doubt he's alluding to Exodus 19, 5 and 6 when he comes to this next part where our text starts at verse 9. But there are two major points when you talk about Christians in a hostile world. First, what are Christians? What makes us so? And then, what does this hostile world look like? Without further ado, I'll read, starting in verse 9 through about verse 12. And the scriptures read this way. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of your redemption. Now clearly there is enough here to keep us excited and enthused about our chosenness for many sermons. But today we're going to look at how this chosen life affects us in a hostile world. Just, I'm going to take a quick break here. Uh, if you aren't currently attending one of our, our Sunday school classes, we have two great ones going on right now. Pastor Michael is teaching about Christology, and Pastor Ron and Arnie are teaching about the Old Testament. Both are great. Just a quick plug, because in the Christology class that Michael's been teaching, he's been talking about how Christ is the second Adam, and there are tremendous implications of all that. But the Apostle's object here was to show that we have been recovered again through Christ the great dignity and honor from which we had fallen. As I said earlier, he's undoubtedly alluding to Exodus 19, 5 and 6, which reads like this. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now, for those of you who know the Bible and references, you know that this comes Exodus 19, right before Exodus 20, which is where the Ten Commandments come in. And so these are the words of God to his chosen people just before he gives them the most well-known set of rules he has. I would say even today, the Ten Commandments is probably the most well-known set of rules that exists. And these wandering Israelites, they were in a hostile world. They were given these promises. And it's unreasonable 
to think that those of us whom God has separated would mix with the ungodly. So this is a reminder to the faithful in an otherwise hostile world. There is great honor to which we have been raised and great purpose to which we have been called. And yet most of the world was and still is unbelieving. So we're indirectly in opposition with them. And though we are exceeded in number, those who believe in Christ and attain all the blessings that He promises us have a singular privilege bestowed on the whole nation of race. He calls us a chosen race because God, passing by others, adopted us in a, in a special way. And as we saw from the passage that Jonathan was reading earlier, God's method of putting together an army is often dwindling the numbers. Sometimes we get caught up in our own strength. Now, to be sure, there is honor in being human. We see the creation mandate, Genesis 1 and 2, Psalm 8, Isaiah 60, Revelation 21 and 22, is here. We have an astonishing capacity to see and hear and feel, and then to think and form judgments about it, and know right from wrong, good from bad, beautiful from ugly, to feel profound emotions of love and hate, joy and discouragement, amazement and appreciation, and then to make our lives extraordinary. Let me give you an example. A while back, my son Jacob, he won a goldfish with his very own gifts. Now, these are skills I was shocked to learn he had, because as I'm looking at this game, I'm saying there's absolutely no way I could do this. So certainly there's no way Jacob could do it. But as is, I'm sure, the first in a very long line of things Jacob has surpassed me, he was able to win this goldfish. Now, anyway, that's sort Jacob was uh, exercised his dominion over this goldfish. He named him Spike. He gave him a home, uh, some sort of a fishbowl. And he took care of him by making his mom and Paul a set of rules that were given on a sheet of paper. I don't even know all that was on there. But he took care of him by naming him, giving him a home, and trying to take care of him. But, unfortunately, the curse of West knowing nothing about animals, except that the spike, as all goldfish eventually do, died. But before he did, Jacob and I would watch him swim around. And to Jacob, he was kind, forgiving, humble, patient, loving, warm, gentle, happy, peaceful, and didn't get noticeably cranky when we didn't beat him, which is a big deal in the West Island. Then I realized this is a fish. He wasn't created in the image of God. And as I began to look at that, I began to think of my own humanness, my son's humanness, my family's humanness. I began to think of the human capacity of, of our elementary Bible quiz team, which went out and some of them are here and they did a great job. And they've learned like seven, eight, nine chapters of the Bible already at the ages of like six, seven, and eight. And I think about this tremendous capacity and I, and I am amazed about the incredible humans that share this planet with me. And now, best of all, I find these wonderful human capacities caught up in knowing, loving, and serving our Maker, our Savior, and our God. Relying on God's strength is so great, and, and here's why. Because our God chose us, sovereignly inspired the text we're reading today, which has at least five ways of describing our identity. And it starts by saying, you are a chosen race. Now I know this is a corporate identity, He's talking about the church, but the implication is individual. 
because this race isn't racial. The chosen race isn't the black race, the white race, the yellow, brown, red. The chosen race is from every nation, tribe, language, color, and culture. And now all of us together are aliens and strangers among this world of humans. Remember in verse 11 it says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to stand. That's, that's describing us. That's who we are. What gives us our identity isn't a protected class that the U.S. government recognizes. I'm sure some of you know the list better than me. It's race, color, religion, sex, national origin, disability, genetic reference, information, age. That doesn't identify us. What identifies us is chosen. Not because of anything, but out from all races, one at a time, God chose us. Not on the basis of our differentiating ourselves from those in verse 8, but on His differentiating us. Remember, verse 8 says, they stumbled as they were destined to do. That's why this is an amazing phrase to us individually, individually crucial. God chose you, not because of your race or any other qualification you have. God chose you. Who am I? I'm chosen. I don't know why. It's nothing I did of value. I didn't do anything better than other humans. I didn't do anything to earn it or merit it or any condition. It happened before I was born. I stand in all of it. I tremble at it. I accept it. I long to be faithful to its purpose. I am chosen. The chosen one. Next it says you are a royal priestess. You are a royal priest. Now, first of all, this just sounds really cool. I mean, Roman state poses the question, who shall lay a charge against God's elect? I'm telling you that if you have a charge to lay against me, this is my answer. I'm a royal priest. Now, if you have a legitimate charge, continue to bring it, that's fine. But, but it's just so comforting to me that when I blow it, which I do, and I'm sure a lot of you are there with me, I am a royal priest. That pretty much satisfies any earthly need to criticize my job, my income, my possessions, anything else. I am a royal priest. The first point here is that we have immediate access to God. We don't need Pastor Jack here to come on our behalf as a mediator. God himself provided the mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus in 1 Timothy 2. You have direct access to God through God. But you probably already knew that and were already excited about that, but it just, it just doesn't stop there. It also means that you have an exalted, active role in God's presence. You're not chosen just to waste time. You are a full-time missionary right now. Your life is priestly service. You are always in the court of the temple. And your life is either spiritual service of worship, as it says in Romans 12, or it's out You are a royal priest. The third way it describes this is you are holy. Now those of you, those of us who went on the cruise two years ago, may have heard Pastor Arnie's quote, or maybe you heard it later, he says, God did not elect you to go to heaven. He elected you to holiness. Heaven is the byproduct. You were elected to holiness. We have been chosen by God to be set apart for God. We exist for God. Since God is holy, we are holy. We share His character. If we do not act in a holy way, we act 
out of character and contradicts essence of a Christian. For our identity is holiness in the Lord. So, we are chosen race, royal priests, we're holy. Then it says we're God's possession. This is expressed twice. In verse 9 it says, you are a people for his own possession. And then in verse 10, it says once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So in case you missed in verse 9, it says it again in verse 10. We are not just chosen by God in a royal position holy. The effect of that is that God takes us to be his possession. He owns everything, which is special. And we are his inheritance. We are the one he aims to spend eternity with. When God says, I will be their God and they will be my possession, it means I will dwell with them and walk them. God has chosen you to be his possession for eternity. And finally, it says, you are, you are an obtainer of mercy. Verse 10 says, once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. John Piper prefers the word pity. He says, when God chose us, he saw us in our sin and guilt and condemnation and pity. We're not just chosen and priests and holy with pity. We're not just the object of his choice. The object of his mercy. We are chosen in pity. He didn't just choose us and then stand unapproachable. After he called us, he drew us near to him with his mercy to help us. My identity is fundamentally this. I have been shown mercy. I am a mercy person. I get my identity not first from my actions, but, but, but from being acted upon with pity. I am a pity one. Now, if this were like a fairy tale, we'd slap a happily ever after on there. Tell our friends to read it. We might enjoy it, hopefully. But yet, this isn't fairy telling. This is a hostile world. This is a cursed world where we need these gifts we just talked about. Lest we suffer the fate of those in verse 8 who stumble at the word. The fate of those Jonathan read about where he said, they keep on hearing, but they do not understand. They keep on seeing, but they do not perceive. Now how is this wonderful description of who we are finished? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, those of you who are big Spurgeon fans know that he preached the whole sermon on just the three words, his marvelous life. I'm not nearly as deep as him, but I am going to steal some of what he said when he said, It is marvelous life, it will never go out. As it is the light of God, the devil cannot blow it out. If all the devils in hell were to try to blow out one single spark that is in a true believer's heart, they might puff till they die of puffing, but they would never put out that spark. God has lit it, and they cannot quench it. Some verses recently read by Pastor Jack as he's been going through John, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Going back a few chapters earlier, where it says, whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give, shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. If you do not keep this chosenness, it's quite clear that you never had it. If you really have this chosenness, it must be eternal life. And it shall abide with you forever. So all these excellent things we talked about God identifying us, 
good forever. But what is better is not only shall you never lose it, but it continually increases. So that we can see that from our identity, or the answer to the question, who are you, leads directly to the question, why are we here? What are we here for? Our identity leads to our destiny. We are chosen, pitied, possessed, and holy, all for a purpose, to minister as priests forever. We are Christians. Now what of this hostile world? Well, let's first look at how the very nature of all the statements you made about us. All of these are personal claims that are made corporately. They're individual promises and we can cling to them and we should. But they're, but he calls us a race, a nation, a priesthood, a people. People that Peter has been pushing us to love one another and work together by saying that we're all bricks in the same wall. All of us together are building the temple of God. And as Ian mentioned, this entire chosen nation is living and working together here in this hostile world of sojourners and exiles. Now, most of us don't have personal knowledge of what it means to be an exile. Maybe we're familiar with a few stories. Corey Ten Boom, Vladislav Spielman, Anne Frank, or even maybe John McCain. You may have heard what it's like to be an exile. But to me, I don't think there's a quicker story that tells about our hostile world and God's provision for his chosen grace than the one Robbie Zacharias tells about his friend and former interpreter, Chaim Penn, which gives a quick visual impression of what it means to be an exile. So this is the story he tells. Shortly after Vietnam fell, Chaim was in prison on accusation of helping Americans. His jailers tried to indoctrinate him against democratic ideals in the Christian faith. He was forced to read only communist propaganda in French or Vietnamese, and the daily deluge of Marx and Engels began to take its toll. Maybe, he thought, I have been lied to. Maybe God does not exist. Maybe the West has deceived me. So Hyam determined that when he awakened the next day, he would not pray anymore. So the next morning he woke up and he was assigned the dreaded chore of cleaning prison latrines. And as he cleaned out a tin can that was overflowing with toilet paper, his eye caught something that looked like English printed on the paper. As he hurriedly grabbed it and washed it, put it away, after all his roommates fell asleep, he retrieved it and read the words. Romans chapter 8. Trembling, he began to read, and we know that all things work. God works for the good of those who love him, or call him according to his purpose. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither present, nor future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am thus. He knew his Bible, and he knew that there was not a more relevant passage for one on the verge of sowing. So he cried out to God asking forgiveness, and this was to be the first day he wasn't going to pray. But God had other plans. Now, as it were, there was an official in the camp who was using the Bible as toilet paper. So Hyam asked the commander if he could clean the latrines every day. Believe it or not, he didn't need with much resistance. Okay? Each day he picked up a portion of scripture and cleaned it and added it to his collection of nightly meetings. 
The day came when, through an equally providential set of circumstances, he was released from prison. And he promptly began to make plans to leave the country and construct a boat for the escape of himself with 53 others. Everything was going according to plan until a few days before, four Viet Cong knocked on Hyam's door and they said, we heard you're going to escape. He denied it and they left. He felt relieved, but at the same time he was disappointed himself. So he made a promise to God, hoping God wouldn't actually take him up on it, saying, if you bring the Viet Cong to ask me again, I'll be honest with you. So, just a few hours before they were going to set sail, the four men returned. And when they questioned again, he confessed the truth. And this is where he was astonished. They leaned forward in a hushed tone, they asked, Can we go with you? So, an entirely incredible escape plan, all 58 of them found themselves on the high seas, suddenly engulfed in a, in a violent storm. I was crying out to God, Did you bring us here to die? Then, Robbie says that Hyam leaned over and told him, Brother Robbie, if it were not for the sailing ability of these four Viet Cong, we never would have made it. They arrived safely in Thailand, and today Hyam is, is on American soil. I hope that we have the same thirst for God as Hyam has. I hope that we would go through old toilet paper to seek after God. I hope we have the loneliness so good. God clearly worked his life, life in such a way that they saw his good deeds and glorified God. We see God working for one of his chosen race in a hostile world. God was an active participant in his delivery and sanctification. Again, I think sometimes we find it easy to trust in our own nature, trust in ourselves, trust in the things we've been given. But our nature is not always the best source of our trust. This is our call, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, by passions of the flesh, I don't think he's just talking about the gross concupiscence, but also every sinful passion and affection of the soul to which we are, by nature, guided and led. For it's certain that every thought of the flesh, which is of an unrenewed nature, is at enmity with God. We need to get rid of hatred, envy, and evil seeking. Therefore, this love isn't just for our benefit, but is also for the benefit of the unbelievers we come into contact with. The idea is that they will see our behavior and as a result turn to God. This is key and these verses come back to this point. Unbelievers will see the way we behave and hopefully they will be saved. This is why we need to keep our conduct among the unsaved is honorable. We've come to expect honorable actions so seldom. My good friend, Daniel Webster, who is running for... He, he was in the primary election. He was described on TV by John Morgan of the For the People thing. As, and this is what John Morgan said. He, someone, he said, Daniel Webster is someone I don't think I agree with on a single issue. Yet he's the most honorable politician I've ever met. To be honest, as someone who's known Daniel Webster for years, it's something... Not that exact phrase, but something I've heard many times. Whether you agree with his politics or not, it's clear that Senator Webster puts his testimony first in a hostile environment where we would all do well to be licensed and death among the Gentiles honorably. Regardless of the issues, I think it would be easier to accomplish something in politics if everyone acted as honorably as Senator Webster. 
Now, as long as I'm talking politics, let me segue into the next set of verses so that we continue the offense, starting with verse 13. And the scriptures read this way. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it's the emperor or the prince, or to governors that sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using their freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the King. This is God putting our new nature to an immediate test. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, not the authorities we like, not the authorities we voted for, not the authorities who act as I believe they should. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. We are called to be in subjection to governmental authorities. They might infringe on our civil rights. They might push bad policies. They might kick God out of schools and courtrooms. But until they try to force you to personally sin, your call is to submit to Just as our race is not defined by some state-recognized criteria, but rather our chosenness, so is our obedience to authority. Now, let me get real and even more irritated. I'm, I, I personally am exceedingly interested in politics. In two days there will be a series of elections, which I think are very important. And if you don't know how to vote, I'll be happy to tell you. Just email me. I'll, I'll fill out your ballot for you. I'll tell you how to vote. I just talk. Voting is a privilege not to be taken for granted. Those of us who reap the benefits of living in a republic should play a role in upholding that said republic. Mostly voting is our stewardship to use all the resources we have. We don't vote. We squander a resource God has given us. We must take responsibility for actions as well as our lack of action. We need to be good stewards of everything God's given us, whether it be our time, our money, our vote, or something else. Nevertheless, the Bible doesn't promise us that freedom. It doesn't promise us a right to vote. It doesn't promise us a politically easy life. Our life of better living is not, or should not, be dependent on a Republican victory. Democratic or an amendment that you particularly like swinging your way. Okay? On Wednesday morning after the votes are counted, I'll either be happy or sad or some weird amalgamation of both. My life as a citizen may get tremendously more difficult or make it a lot easier. But my calling remains unchanged. My inclusion in the chosen race mandates that I live in such a way as to bring honor to the Lord, and He says that I do that by submitting to every human institution. We are called to honor the king. Unless you want to know a little bit about the king that was around when Peter wrote this, let me tell you a little bit about Nero. In AD 37, he was born. His name was Lucius Benitez Ahenabrach. Can we prophet Michael saying that name correctly there? His mother's name was Agrippina the Younger. She married the Roman Emperor Claudius. So she had him adopt her little boy and change his name to Nero Claudius Drastus Germanicus. Now the adoption of the name change, we can look at historically and say we're all part of her plotting to see him, instead of Claudius' biological son, Britannicus, become the emperor of Rome. Because when Nero was 17 years old, 
His mother arranged for Claudius to be poisoned to death. Nero was proclaimed the emperor of Rome. His reign lasted 14 years before he committed suicide. Now, in the first half of his reign, there were relatives. We look at his relatively good government because he received counsel from Burrus, who was the head of the Praetorian Guard, and from Seneca, the famous Stoic philosopher. Now, we can look at his history and say that Nero was selfish and calculating and capable of ruling well on his own. He became paranoid when there were rumors all around that he was going to be killed. So in 55, he killed off his stepbrother, Britannicus. Then in 59, he executed his mother, the very person who put him there. And in 62, he had his first wife executed. And then Seneca was forced to commit suicide before he was killed. Now, you say, well, Nero wasn't the only leader Peter knew. That's true. He knew about Pilate, the governor in Judea, who washed his hands of Jesus' murder, had him beaten, and turned him over to be crucified with no real grounds. He knew of Herod Antipas, who executed John the Baptist, beheaded him as, as a dancing prize, and later put his purple robe on Jesus and mocked him with holes. Now, Peter was probably a boy in Galilee when he heard that Herod the Great had killed all the children in Bethlehem. So Peter wasn't naive about a vicious world of government corruption and wickedness. He didn't live in a Christian nation where there were no bad rulers. He didn't have to worry about it. He knew very well the depravity of human nature and the utterly ruinous corruption that political power can bring. And that is the perspective which he brings to the text, both verses 13, where it says he subjects to every human institution, and verse 17, it says honor the king. Talk about a hostile world. Now, I think there are real issues that make honoring our government difficult. For example, right now, we have a sitting president who has a tremendously different attitude towards those being mixed together in their mother's womb than I do. Nevertheless, I must honor him. And believe it or not, I need to pray for him and follow the laws and passes also. Even if I disagree with him. Even if I think they're against what the founders of this great country meant. My call is to honor the ruler. Now, I was looking for some practical ways that pro-life Christians should honor pro-choice president. Now, if you don't happen to agree with me on that issue, other than the fact that you're wrong, substitute in the issue you do disagree with someone on, because we're not all going to have leaders who agree with us on everything. But I want to give John Piper credit for this, because... I stole it from him. But there are six ways that I think that we can honor the king. First, looking later in this book, 1 Peter 5, 6, we can humble ourselves. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. If we humble ourselves, that is the first way we can honor our king. Okay? Secondly, we need to acknowledge that the leader with whom we disagree is a man made in God's image. Because, remember, verse 17 doesn't just say honor the king, it says honor all, all people, honor everyone. So, we need to honor them, whether or not they're a ruler, and even after they're in office. James 3.9 says, well, it's right after it talks about the... No human can tame the thumb. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord and we curse people who are made in his likeness. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. 
if we are praising God, which we ought to be doing, and we have people creating God's image, we need to acknowledge they are there made in God's image. We need to honor them. And especially our leaders. Third, we can acknowledge it's God's institution. In the responsive reading that we read with people, we talked about Romans 13, which is, is a hard verse for me to really like. But it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And verse 4 says, For he is the servant of God for your good. But if you will all be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God. And Avenger tears out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Twice in the same verse, the text says, He is the servant of God. Now, we don't take that in the same context as we need to be the servants of God, but He is put there by God's institution for us. That's another way we can honor Him, acknowledge that God's institution is there. Fourth, we honor the laws that don't conflict. Like I said, unless they're telling you to personally sin, you need to honor those laws. There are some laws which I struggle with. I'm sure there are laws you struggle with. Speed limit? Uh, I, I, I struggle. Especially when I'm late. Which is always. Uh, there are laws that don't conflict with our calling. We need to follow those laws. That's how we can honor our rulers. Verse 13 that we just read says, Subject for the Lord's sake to human institution. We're not following these laws because we like the people who made them. We're not even following them because we like the laws themselves. We're following them for God. That's how we can serve them. That's our reasonable service. This way, we don't I withdraw or isolate. A lot of people have a tendency to do this. If you go back to verse 15, where it says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Well, if we're withdrawing, and we're not participating in government, and we're not doing anything, how can we put to silence? We can't. We need to not withdraw our iPhone. We need to be good Christian citizens. And finally, and most importantly to me, we trust the sovereign, loving purpose of God. The same God who throughout the course of the Bible turned all these terrible, atrocious circumstances into his good is working still today. And so by submitting to these God-ordained but not God-fearing authorities, we are doing God's will. And by doing this, we put to silence those who say, Christians disobey government. Christians don't care about government. Christians shoot abortionists. Christians beat up homosexuals. Christians have no regard for the laws of this nation. Yes, our world is hostile to us. You know how I know? I've read the rest of this chapter. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, and have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is a gracious thing, mindful God will endure suffering unjustly. Doesn't sound like an easy life to me. Doesn't sound like something I want. I want to live in a world where there is no suffering. People don't die. I continue to have my right to vote. My candidates usually win. I'm only submitting to people who agree with me on everything. I don't want to live in a world like Daniel was praying was illegal. I don't want to live in a world where, 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 like Martin Luther, where the church teaches that I can reduce my time in some purgatory if I do certain things. God has pitied me. He's chosen me. He is possessing me. He is making me holy. And he's helping me to work as a royal priest for him. And my response to that call needs to be submission to the authority he gives and the courage to stand up for him when it is necessary. Frankly, this is a very hard concept for me to obey. I spent much of my life believing that God wanted me to run for office. I care very much about elections. I don't like to submit to anyone who disagrees with me on anything. But God's been beating me up as I've been preparing this message. And while I believe our government is great, I really believe that, I really do. Yet I believe what is a politically great thing, the protection of life, liberty, and property. Not necessarily a Christian promise. Matthew 16, 24, and 25 tells us to give up our life and our liberties. Jay Packer once wrote, It is a great paradox of the Christian life that the more profoundly one is concerned about heaven, the more deeply one cares about God's will being done on earth. I hope that this is us. I hope that we are caring about what's happening on this earth continually. Look, I guarantee you that terrible things are going to happen. We've seen evidence of that this week. We've seen evidence of that throughout our lives. We know that we live in a world that is hostile towards us and our God. But we also know that our God, who pitied us, chose us, possesses us, calls us to be holy. He calls us to be royal priests who can come directly to Him. And we know His character, and we can trust in it. God dwells in us. The life divine is within us. So I beseech you, live as those who should live. Not only as heirs of heaven, but those who have, as Spurgeon put it, the life of heaven abiding in our hearts. Amen. We live in a hostile world, but we serve a God who can help us in that hospital. And he's chosen us to do just that. Pray with us. Dear God, thank you so much that you pitied us, chose us, 
called us to be holy and continually working on our sanctification. We pray that you would help us to submit. That you would help us to become more like you in everything we do. I pray that the words I've said today that were nearly my opinion would be quickly forgotten so that your truth may abound in you and that. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for everything you've given. Please send my prayer. Amen.